On the cover of Time magazine, there was a phrase, it should, should be a slide here, that mentioned this phrase, America is at a transgender tipping point. Not a transgender moment, a transgender tipping point. In the article, which contained the idea, my brother's pregnancy, the new American family, it asked the question, what if you're born into a female body, know that you are a man, and still want to participate in the traditionally exclusive right of womanhood? What kind of man are you then? This is Time Magazine's question that many people wrestle with and many people face. What kind of man are you then? How do we process this understanding of biology and identity and how we interact with these things? It does seem we are at a tipping point. The Boy Scouts have changed their name to the Scouts BSA. And in one very, very moving video, a transgender kid puts on a scout uniform for the first time. Very humanizing moment. Vogue put their first trans model in their magazine. An article in The Atlantic called When Children Say They're Trans dedicated almost an entire issue to wrestling with our understanding of gender dysphoria amongst children. Amazon created a a TV series, Transparent, early in 2014, and the vision was to help promote transgender identity on screen. Perhaps you've seen the TV show I Am Jazz or seen clips of it online about uh, a young trans woman's quest for authenticity and her process of navigating this amongst her peers and in the world. In Australia, we have the first trans clergy. This was a a major moment in the Australian church. National Geographic did an entire issue on the role of gender, a gender revolution. A church that's in New York City, Forefront Church, made it to the New York Times, one of its most republished articles, because the fathers, the founders passed, the, the founders' father, who used to be a famous pastor, transitioned to a woman. And he detailed his journey of coming to peace in terms with that. I ended up meeting with her, Paula, and having coffee with her and talking about her experience of being an alpha male leading an evangelical church planting movement, transitioning to a woman. We've got liberal bathroom concern about the practical realities of hashing out the dynamic in culture, on the ground, amongst liberal elites. This is from New York. This is liberal elites worrying about what the bathroom laws mean. While we're talking about bathroom laws... It's kind of extraordinary that the president of America wrote a letter to schools on having a bathroom policy, and then the next president of America wrote a letter saying, don't worry about it. Just so you guys know, who are not from America, that outside of America, that seems like such governmental overreach, it's kind of unbelievable. But just to mirror back your America to you. I'm American too, at heart. (laughs) And then... This, which was quite recent, Oscars highlight the transgender moment. The Oscars get turned due to films that are nominated, uh, due to actors. It seems like as a culture, we're aching to break new territory around the issue of gender nonconformity. It's a transgender tipping point. It's not a transgender moment. It's a tipping point. Now, again, a cisgender married with children man giving this talk, I'm aware of it, but the same disclaimer... We have to try and understand these dynamics as followers of Jesus in our time. And again, the question we're asking here is about formation. Who are we becoming 
by the practices, theology, and ideas that we embody. Who are we actually becoming connected to all of this? Now, in this talk here, part of the challenge that we have is there's so much transgender activism right now that I will only address in the final six minutes of this talk. And what I actually want to talk about is for followers of Jesus who wrestle with gender dysphoria, what does this actually mean? And this to me seems like the thing that nobody's talking about. We get caught up in the, in the politics, we get caught up in the legislation that we're not actually just talking about for the typical person sitting in the pew who struggles with gender dysphoria. I feel like I am trapped in the wrong body and I feel like I'm going insane and I feel like I hate my body and I want to change. What do we do? Those people are in our pews. I asked the question, how many transgender people are there in America? It's actually very, very hard to find out. Older data suggests that between 0.005% to 0.014% of adult males and 0.002% to 0.003% of adult females have gender dysphoria. That's 1 in 10,000 to 13,000, 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 34,000. And when you hear that, sometimes people dismiss that as like, that is such a tiny percentage. But that nets out to almost a million people. And amongst young people, the latest studies come in show that nearly 3% of teenagers today identify as transgender or gender non-confirming. That is a 329% increase from one generation to the next, which makes sociologists ask why. And one explanation says this, with growing trans visibility in the United States, youth find it safer to come out and explore gender. Explore gender. So is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? What's happening here? It's very, very confusing. Now, I wanted to define the term we're actually talking about here. To discuss being transgender is to discuss one's experience of gender identity, one's sense of oneself as male or female, and how that psychological and emotional experience is not aligning with one's birth sex. When we refer to a person's sex, we are commonly making reference to the physical, biological, and anatomic dimensions of being male or female. These facets include chromosomes, gonads, sexual anatomy, and secondary sex characteristics. Sex is frequently distinguished from gender. Gender refers to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Dysphoria means being uneasy about or generally dissatisfied with something. Thus, gender dysphoria refers to the experience of having a psychological and emotional identity as either male or female and that your psychological and emotional identity does not correspond to your biological sex. This perceived incongruity can be a source of deep and ongoing discomfort. Specifically, gender dysphoria is on one hand the experience of being born male, biological sex, but feeling a psychological and emotional identity as a female. Similarly, gender dysphoria is the experience of being born female, biological sex, but feeling a psychological or emotional identity as a male. When a person experiences gender incongruence and it's causing them significant distress or impairment, they may meet the criteria for the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And this sits in a larger conversation with our culture about gender theory and society. This is described as follows. Gender identity, which is how in, you, in your head you define your gender. Gender expression, which is the way that you present through your actions, dress, demeanor, etc. Then there's biological sex, which includes genitalia, body shape, voice, pitch, body hair, chromosomes, etc. Then finally, sexual orientation, sexually attracted to, romantically attracted to. 
I was in uh, one of the schools that our church meets in has the, if we go to the next slide here, the, the genderbred person, which in many ways is a simple tool taught to help children navigate this conversation. Gender's in the brain, sexual and romantic attraction are in the heart, biological sex is in the pelvis, and gender expression is everywhere how you present those things. Again, what causes gender dysphoria? No one's quite sure. Compound amount of things? Neuroplasticity, small sample size, brain differences, all of the studies are very, very hard to tell. Now, again, this is a very, very contested issue, and trans activism and trans activists tend to be, at the moment, on the front line of the sexual revolution. That is the point of contact with our culture around this issue. But when you get away from the activists and you talk to the typical person who wrestles with gender dysphoria, or, comes across, or identifies as a trans person, the conversation is actually very, very different. So when I talk to trans people, they're just trying to get on with their lives and live in the identity that they have chosen. They want to have normal jobs and they want to figure out how to go about being who they think they are. They're not about an ideological war. They're, not, they're just like, look, I just, I'm struggling with something. I'm trying to respond to it in the healthiest way possible that enables me to thrive. I want to get on with my life. But I still want to outline the contours of this war so that we understand it a little bit. So on one side, people view gender as, as an oppressive tool that needs to be deconstructed. And for them, gender is about oppression. Drawing on the work of philosopher Michael Foucault and thinkers such as Judith Butler, queer theorists construe gender categories as mere social constructs, cultural inventions perpetuated to serve the power plays of the religious and cultural elites that stand behind them. In this understanding, they are, there are no compelling biological realities behind these categories, far less any natural, organically embedded norms in which we're supposed to walk. They are the outer layers that need to be cast off in the search for authenticity. Judith Lawbury, radical feminist, writes, she longs for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared, when no longer anyone asks boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the colour of a child's eyes. Only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. This is built on understanding from John Stuart Mills, the founding father of modern Western liberalism, as the sovereignty of self. He writes, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign, the sovereignty of self. Modern authenticity, Jonathan Grant writes, encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes the personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. This is the quest for the authentic self. Diane Ehrenstaff, the Director of Mental Health at the Child and Adolescent Gender Center at Bionoff Children's Hospital, University of California, California San Francisco, long business card, <laughs> says this, talking about children and gender, they refuse to pin themselves down as either male or female, maybe they are a boy, girl, or gender hybrid, or gender ambidextrous, moving freely between genders, living somewhere in between, or creating their own mosaic of gender identity and expression. 
As they grow older, they might identify themselves as agender or gender neutral or gender queer. Each of these children is exercising their gender creativity and we think of them as our gender creative children. Young transgender people, she says, are the best teachers in alerting us to the realities that gender exists primarily between our ears, in our brains and mind, and not necessarily by what is between our legs, our genitalia, or our accompanying XX or XY chromosomes, as many are mistakenly prone to believe. The Director of Mental Health, the Child Adolescent Gender Centre, San Francisco. This produces a tremendous challenge to doctors then, scrambling to keep up with the science of what is in many ways a, a rushed phenomenon, being pushed through our culture at such an accelerated rate. The clinician is now confronted with an often bewildering array of individuals with transgender experiences, including transsexual, transvestite, she-male, queer, third sex, two-spirit, drag queen, drag king, and cross-dresser. The phrase transgender experience is currently used to refer to the many different ways individuals may experience a gender identity outside of the simple categories of male and female. It should be remembered that there are many individuals who have blended genders in some way who never seek treatment and who may be very comfortable with their atypical gender identity. The American Academy of Pediatricians just released new guidelines on how transgender children are to be treated. And so they issue something that doctors are to memorize. Let me show you the actual form. So here's the table. <laughs> it's that complex. It's just like a white... Anyway, trust me. The screen couldn't even handle it. In essence, it's just a very, very... Nah, that's not it, but don't worry about it. <laughs> it's a very, very long chart where doctors have to familiarize themselves with all of the nuanced details of, of how a five-year-old may choose to express themselves. So, yes, look at that. So this is the, the list of terms related to gender care that pediatricians are now required to understand and master as a child comes in to be able to make sense of them. My point is, it's moving at such a strong rate that as major academic uh, societies and associations put this forth, people are scrambling to even learn the language in response to their care. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, the update of the American Academy of Pediatrics care guidelines is there used to be an approach called wait, uh, watch and see. We'll just wait and see what happens. Over 80% of children who struggle with gender dysphoria will revert to their biological sex when they, reach, when they go through puberty. And so the response is, hey, look, if, if your son uh, is indicating that he wants to be a girl, let him dress up uh, as Halloween, as a female Disney character, and don't force constructions on him, but just, just sort of let it go and we'll just wait till they go through puberty and see what happens. But these new guidelines say that itself is a form of reparative therapy that should be resisted. Whatever a child says needs to be responded to with great concern. The script of the trans community says this. Gender dysphoria reflects a naturally occurring difference among types of people, transgender rather than cisgender. Your gender dysphoria as gender incongruence suggests who you are rather than how you are. So who I am rather than how I am. Gender dysphoria points to a community of others who experience a similar phenomenon. So your primary identity and community on earth is the trans community. And your gender incongruence points to something at the core of who you are, something that is central to your identity. And so this is being pushed through by activists in our society on the front lines of the war on gender. On the other side of this, there's tremendous pushback amongst conservatives. And for them, gender is not something to be deconstructed. Gender is obviously just a part of the creator's design. 
For leaders like this, it's just so simple and clear. From their perspective, how are we even having a conversation about this in our society? One of the leading proponents who, uh, of a conservative vision of gender would be John Piper. John Piper is very, very well known as a Bible teacher and uh, the leader of Desiring God. He's also famous for helping coin the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and the term complementarian. When asked the role of gender according to design, their belief is that men and women possess within themselves innate senses of gender. And for a man, the essence of biblical manhood is leadership. And for a woman, the essence of biblical femininity is submission to male leadership. And these things are in creation and possessed deep within the being of every man and woman. So in this framework, when challenged in one, with one question, should women exert influence over men, there was a tremendous controversy around the response, the city planner and the drill sergeant. So Piper's response, and you can go look this up, I'm trying to be very fair and generous with my presentation of it, was that women should not direct, exert direct influence over men in a real-time environment. So the example of a woman standing over a man, issuing commands to the man, that would not be an appropriate biblical environment. But if the woman was to be a city planner that designed the streets that a man would drive his car down and exert indirect influence, it would not be sinful or a problem because she wasn't directly using her influence to overcome a man in his presence. This led to a tremendous response about the roles of men and women now, some people, when I gave this talk, said, this is not fair, you're characterizing this, you're throwing him under a bus. This last week, Desiring God released another article in response to the new Avengers movie, lamenting Disney's new depiction of femininity. Quote, as I consider Disney's new depiction of femininity in Captain Marvel, I cannot help but mourn how far we've come since the days when we sought to protect and cherish our women. The great drum roll of the previous Avenger movies led to this, a woman protecting men and saving the world. The mightiest of all the Avengers, indeed after whom they are named, is the armed princess turned feminist queen who comes down from the tower to do what Prince Charming could not. Am I nitpicking? It's a movie after all. I wish it were. Instead of engaging the movie's ideology as mere fiction, a fun escape to another world, we have allowed it to bear deadly fruit on earth. Along with Disney, we abandon the traditional princess vibe and seek to empower little girls everywhere to be strong like men. Cinderella trades her glass slippers for combat boots, bell her boots for a bazooka. Doesn't the insanity bother us anymore? And so any cultural depiction of blurred gender roles according to a strict complementarian classification is rife. Beth Moore released an article in response to this that says this. Let the record show people are clapping for Beth Moore in Portland. <laughs> As a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced deference. Not just proper respect, which I was glad to show to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature so I wouldn't be taller than he. 
I've ridden elevators and hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and have not been spoken to and even more awkwardly in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expect to understand were all in good fun. I am a laugher. I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it and also when I'm, on, I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and pour over the scriptures while you were still in pull-ups. About a year ago, I had an opportunity to meet a theologian I'd long respected. I'd read virtually every book he'd written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. The instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly and said, you are better looking than fill in the blank. He didn't leave it blank. He filled in the name of another woman Bible teacher. In response to this, many people say this is the idolization of modern formation and gender roles, not necessarily biblical ones. We have modern assumptions about work and roles, in many ways more formed by the fruit of the industrial revolution than a biblical understanding. In pre-industrial societies, most work was done on the family farm or in home industries where husband and wife served alongside each other. Work was not the father's job, it was the family industry. As a result, women were involved in economically productive labor, while men were far more involved in raising and educating children than they are today. What changed all this was the Industrial Revolution. It took work out of the home, and that seemingly simple change dramatically altered gender roles. Fathers had to follow their work out of the home to the office and factory, which meant they were no longer intimately involved with their families. Women no longer had access to income-producing work that could be performed at home while raising children. The result was greatly constricted roles for men and women, which in turn led to narrower definitions of masculinity and femininity. Many young people today who question gender roles are chafing against the remnants of 19th century stereotypes. Storylines from the Christian reaction to the gender deconstructionist is this. It's a spiritual matter and it's sinful. Fulfillment comes from adopting traditional gender roles that correspond with your biological sex. The failure to find worth and purpose and meaning in traditional roles is an expression and mark of willful disobedience. And cross-gender behaviors and roles are unacceptable as they undermine the truth about who you have been made to be. It's hard to have a nuanced position in a world like this. I want to humbly submit, and we've done a lot of work, so this will not be as long or as technical as the previous two talks because it builds upon one another. But I want to submit that gender shouldn't be deconstructed and it's not purely about design. The role of gender in the economy of God is to display the goodness and glory of God. It's gender is designed to display, not just define. Male and female... We are created, but we're made to display God's glory. Far from being a mere cultural construct, God depicts the existence of a man and a woman as essential to his creational plan. The two are neither identical nor interchangeable, but when the woman who is taken out of the man joins again with the man in sexual union, the two again become one flesh, dividing the human race into two genders, male and female, one or the other, not both, and not, one of them the, and not one then the other is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oaths. It's God's idea. So Jesus in Genesis again references male and female. He created them. Now, why has he created them male and female? Three reasons. Number one, it's to reflect diversity. 
The start of the book of, this is N.T. Wright, in the start of the book of Genesis, we have this rich symbolic account of God's good creation and which, at its very heart, the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. That is why I believe the biblical picture of man and woman together in marriage is not something about which we can say, oh, well, they had some funny ideas back then, we know better now. The biblical view of marriage is part of the larger whole of new creation, and it symbolizes the points in that divine plan. Every time as a priest I celebrate the marriage of a couple, I'm reminding myself, and I frequently remind the couple, that what we are doing is setting up a signpost. We live in a world of many storms and many winds. These signposts can easily get battered and broken, but they are pointing somewhere, and the reality to which they are pointing is the fulfillment of God's good purposes for creation. Marriage is a sign of, in all things, heaven and earth coming together in Christ. And so men and women's primary representation is to point to Christ and the church. It reflects complementarity in difference and reunion when those differences come together that reflect the longing and the whole. The second goal in God's display of gender is to release and restrain the weaknesses and strengths of other genders. Now, let me explain what I, what I mean by this. Both genders have strengths and both genders, unmitigated, contain some weaknesses. And the reason that men and women function in wholeness together is that the presence of the other releases the best of the gender and, re and restrains the weakness of the gender. Let me give you a real-time example. One of the things that has been very, very confusing for conservative theologians, though to me not surprising at all, is the fall of complementarian reformed pastors. Now, most of, the, most of the pastoral failures we're used to are Pentecostal scandals, aren't they? It's hyperfaith. It's the guy with the private jet embezzling money. So most of our failures have been these super, super theologically light, personality-driven churches where there's no accountability around money and sexuality, and they take a bunch of the church's money, and they run off with the secretary. But if you were to map out scandals, major scandals, over the last 10 years, one of the most heartbreaking things you will find is that strong reform pastors may be the most prone pastors to be removed from ministry of any category. Now, they're removed for different reasons. Pride, lack of shepherding, belligerence, very interesting. And I've, I've asked the question, how does this happen? And it's quite simple. You get 100 men in the room called the elders of the church, and it's just a giant testosterone-fueled pecking event. Who's number one? Who's number two? Who's the alpha? Who's the beta all the way down to the zeta? It's just primal male energy without restraint. But I guarantee you, if one woman was to simply walk in the room and say, gentlemen, what are we discussing here? All of that anger and that aggression would be subdued and the servant side of a man would be released. In the same room, if you were to attend an event that was filled with 100 women discussing something, and then one man was to step into the room, the nature of the room, the dynamic would change. What would change? The goal of gender is to release and to restrain. It's why we need one another. And so in, in a godly functioning relationship, our otherness actually complements our sameness and enables the best of who we are and the worst of who we are to be released and to restrain. And that is why... 
If you, if you study the statistics and sociology of same-sex relationships, they don't play out. It's not popular to say, but they don't play out in the same way that other gender relationships play out. They have a different contour to them. Two men have a different dynamic and two women have a different dynamic than in a man and a woman in a relationship. The releasing and restraining based on gender seems to be a part of God's design. It's not good for man to be alone. So I don't know why we invent structures in Christianity that fuel what creation was addressed by God in Genesis. To release and to restrain. And ultimately, again, it's a reminder of the reunion that we're headed to. Mark Yarhouse says this, to be human is also to experience a longing for completion. Did God create us with a longing for completion that forces us to look outside of ourselves so the longing itself would be illustrative? It may be that the longing for the other that is related to our biological sex and gendered selves, because it is meant to represent a longing for God. The creation of two sexes provides then a living illustration of a point intended to direct us towards our creator. So the reason the Bible teaches marriage is between two people of opposite genders is because God designed creation with two genders, a man and a woman, to represent Christ in the church. The reason we limit the number is because of the number of genders that God creation uh, were included in creation, and re the reason we need complementarity is the picture of Christ and the church. It reminds us of our reunion. This, when you study the Scriptures, then seems to be the theme of Scripture. God wants unity in complementarity. Genesis 1 speaks to this, and this is why when you begin to read verses like this, Deuteronomy 22, 5, a woman must not wear men's clothing nor a man wear women's clothing for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. The blurring of gender lines is not something that appears to please God. Now, people often say, well, what does Jesus say about this? I want to return to this passage here in Matthew 19 that we talked about because I believe that Jesus does address or at least have a cultural awareness of what we're talking about. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So, Jesus, in this passage, seems to affirm several factors, design, creator, and the context of marriage. But it is interesting to note Jesus has some understanding of variance in here. Jesus makes reference to the point that there are some people in this passage who are born eunuchs. And what does he mean by this? He at least has an awareness some people are made eunuchs. Some people choose to live like eunuchs. There are those who are born eunuchs. Jesus has some awareness of at least the concept of intersex conditions, but his response is not to deconstruct and dismiss gender then, even in light of its presence. It's to reaffirm creational intent between man and woman. It's all a part of God's very good blueprint. So if God's design is to display, to release, to restrain, to point to Christ then, how do we respond in love when someone genuinely experiences gender dysphoria? 
Well, to the non-believing transgender person, first, I would just say, come and learn about Jesus and his incredible love. God's goal for your life is not primarily the reconciliation of your gender. It's to find new life in Jesus. And so if you, ha- if you can, even though it's hard, set apart your discussion on gender and look at who Jesus is. This is our message. It's not cisgender. It's Jesus Christ. Come explore. Come and see. Let's create an environment where people of every expression can be loved and have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And also to feel free to talk about the things they're experiencing and the things that they're struggling with. But to the believer struggling with this, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is this. When we, when we wrestle with issues of gender, whose authority are we willing to submit to? Who do we trust on this issue? And which knowledge will we listen to? We have to beware as followers of Jesus of the cultural ideology that is seeking to form and shape us. Again, we're talking about spiritual formation in the way of Jesus. And when we ask who do we become by how we identify or how we practice has tremendous, tremendous implications for our formation. In our culture, there's a four-step process that responds to your sense of self. Social transition of identity, puberty blockers if you're young so you don't go through puberty, cross-sex hormones to alter your state, to take on the appearance of the other gender, and ultimately sexual reassignment surgery. This is the pathway of our society's vision of formation. Start externally, hold off natural processes, take cross-sex hormones, and through surgically, surgery radically alter your body. The challenge with this for the follower of Jesus is though this may produce some psychological relief, it actually doesn't bring the body into alignment with the other gender. And ultimately, it doesn't fully alleviate gender distress. So one of the questions that Christian psychologists in responding to this try and put forth is an understanding of frameworks about how Christians think about responding to gender dysphoria. Mark Yarhouse is probably the world's leading expert, Christian expert on the transgender issue. And he's put a frame up that he calls the responses framework. If we can bring this up here. So he talks about three ways Christians choose to respond when someone genuinely struggles with gender dysphoria. First of all, you have the design framework. It identifies the phenomenon of gender incongruence as confusing the sacredness of maleness and femaleness and specific resolutions as violations of that integrity. The disorder framework, a middle position, identifies gender incongruence as a reflection of a fallen world in which the condition is a disability, a non-moral reality to be addressed with compassion. And then you have the diversity framework in its strong form, deconstruction sex of gender, in its weak form, highlights transgender issues as reflecting an identity and culture to be celebrated as an expression of diversity. And he puts this forth that in Christian formation discipleship and discipleship, a person struggling with gender dysphoria chooses their response on this continuum. You see this when Barbara Walters, when uh, doing an interview with Jazz, who's the, the young transgender woman, when her family has a discussion about she, how, how she identifies, we says this, Walters asks Jazz's older sister, What do you explain to people about your sister? 
She says, I tell people that it's a disorder and that it wasn't, that it's not by choice. She has a disorder framework. But Jazz rejects this with a diversity framework. Jazz shares, personally, I don't like the word disorder that much. I prefer special or unique because that's what I believe transgender is. So even within one family, you see these different responses. Needless to say, Piper was not invited to the interview for the discussion. You, you see how this is laid out here. But what I would like to do, I mean, very, very humbly, is improve this framework if I can. If we can add the next slide here. I think there's two things that are perhaps missing from this framework. Number one is the framework of lordship. What claims does Jesus make on my physical body? In reading earlier, the body doesn't belong to you but to the Lord's. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. In what way does the fact that your body belongs to Christ and not primarily your own expression be taken into consideration in a discipleship framework? And then also the direction that we're heading in in terms of our formation. What is the ultimate talos of gender expression, gender conformity, gender formation in regards to our eternal identity? And so submitting our bodies in surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, then asking how our physical embodied spirituality moves towards the telos for which God's created it, informs the way that we think through this issue. So I want to submit that rather than just thinking about design or disorder or diversity, we think about discipleship and direction about who we're becoming by how we reveal our gender in the world. We want to acknowledge creational intent and physical reality. We want to understand we live in a fallen world and that it affects us in many ways. We want to celebrate and honor the person wrestling with this and make a family that can belong. But we want to help them focus their identity, not on gender identity, but spiritual identity, and walk with them as they move towards eternity. To summarize, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on a, journey, on a trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. And that has to be kept in mind when we discuss issues of gender. Now, to create a community in which people think about this issue is important. Yahouse says this, if you want a person suffering from gender incongruence to choose a path that seems more redemptive, you will want to be part of a redemptive community that facilitates this kind of decision-making. How do you have an environment where you're so secure? Again, conviction and compassion. Where people wrestling with this honestly can have a discussion without fear of judgment, will be, will be, but will be supported in the way of Jesus. Now, pastorally, people immediately begin to ask questions related to this. One question you hear people say a lot is, don't intersex people prove that there's more than one gender? Doesn't the existence of intersex people throw this out? Well, I had a, a very, very beautiful conversation with this, uh, one of the directors of the Center for Intersex and Faith, and she shared her story with me, and um, back and forth, a lot of theological discussion about how to respond to this issue. And her response is simply, no, the Intersex Society of North America says this, intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. 
Disorders of sexual development occur in roughly one out of every 5,000 births. They can re result in ambiguous external genitalia, a mismatch between internal and external reproductive organs, the incomplete development of reproductive organs, and the formation of two sex of sex organs. But this does not dismiss a gender binary framework. What it should do is produce within us tremendous compassion. And in one conversation with her, she said this to me. If your doctor's not sure whether your newborn is male or female, what will you tell your church when they say, is it a boy or a girl? If you refuse medically unnecessarily, unnecessary cosmetic genital surgery, will someone in the nursery freak out when they change your child's diaper? Are you prepared for that? What will your church say if they think your child's behavior isn't feminine or masculine enough? The sex designation on an intersex child's birth certificate is often provisional. If your intersex daughter's birth certificate says male, will your school let her use the girl's facilities? Will they let everyone else in the school know she's different by forcing her to use the nurse's bathroom? And in my conversations, this, this humanized the issue and produced tremendous empathy. There are exceptions to gender. But Jesus, aware of this, restates male and female, he made them. There seems to be two kinds of fundamentalism. Sexual minority is an, exception, is an, exce an exception, therefore we need to deconstruct all gender. Or there are two kinds of gender, therefore we should not be concerned or acknowledge any sort of variance of minority. Both of these seems inappropriate. The spiritual emphasis is on this, Galatians 3 that we are, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. In Jesus, we are one. This should be a central framework of how we stand before God. And in Isaiah 56, one of the most breathtaking passages about inclusion you can read, it says, let not those with crushed testicles say, I am but a dry tree. And then the passage Jesus quotes where he says, my house will be made a house of prayer for all nations. He says, I will give you an inheritance and a name better than that of sons and daughters. So Jesus' ability to include through the new covenant is quite extraordinary. So we should have tremendous pastoral care and empathy for intersex people. We should remind them they're loved by God. It's a complex issue but one that deserves tremendous compassion. Some people say, well, what do you do with uh, transgender people? What do you do with pronouns and names? If ever there's a lightning rod test, it's on pronouns. Well, my, in essence, my response is this. If you're just meeting someone for the first time and they introduce themselves by their name, you should probably call them by the name they've given you. <laughs> that feels like a genuine courtesy. It gets way more complex when someone transitions and they shift their name. What should a church do about bathrooms? Well, I think in a spirit of sincerity, we should do our, be, we should be our, do our best to be accommodating. What do we do if a trans person wants to attend a men's or women's group? It depends how far they are into the life of the community and how clear the teaching the church has been on their understanding of gender and transgender realities. But in essence, a missional church, I believe, should at least think through it like this. The approach uh, in a lot of communities is behave the right way, believe the right thing, and then we'll let you in. Then you can belong. But the missional church model is a different outline. We just want to love you. 
Then we want to help you to meet Jesus, and ultimately we'll trust that intimacy with Jesus produces the spiritual formation that he will require. Getting that in order seems to me to be the key of whether or not you will be missional or reactional on this problem. Well, here's a question then that it really comes down to. How do we counsel people if they say, I have gender dysphoria, I want to transition? Or what do you do if a trans person comes to your church and says, I want to detransition because I've met Jesus? These are things almost nobody is willing to talk about. So I'm going to give you two answers from two experts. One again from your house. Listen carefully to what he says. Towards that end, I see the value in encouraging individuals who experience gender dysphoria to resolve dysphoria in keeping with their birth sex. Where those strategies have been unsuccessful, there is potential value in managing dysphoria through the least invasive expressions, recognizing surgery as the most invasive step towards expression of one's internal sense of identity. Given the complexities associated with these issues and the potential for many and varied presentations, pastoral sensitivity should be a priority. So what does he say? Encourage individuals to experience it to resolve with their birth sex, but be pastorally sensitive as people are wrestling with this. Andrew T. Walker responds this way. How a person begins to accept and live out their biological sex and God-given gender is going to look different for different individuals. For some, there may be instantaneous acceptance. For others, it may be long and painful and involve as many troughs as peaks. Accepting God's authority over our lives is easier than coming to grips with all the implications of that within our lives. What matters is the attitude of repentance, of Christ being ruler, not self. Actions will sooner or later flow out of that. But again, will we resolve to be people who create space for those genuinely wrestling with this to respond. Now, at this point, I want to shift our thinking a little bit, not inside the church, spiritual formation in the way of Jesus, but how the church of Jesus that holds this vision actually has a conversation in the larger culture right now. Honestly, the speed at which this has happened is it's even more significant than the way the gay community moved through culture. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept. It's a political concept called the Overton Window. I have a one-page summary of it right here for you. This is the Overton Window. This is how uh, people move ideas through culture. So you start off with a new idea. We want to change something. It starts off as absolutely unthinkable. And then the goal in culture is to just push the same idea again. Push this, don't push further. Just push the same idea. And by the time you've heard that same idea pushed 150 times through every media outlet and every television show in America, it's kind of not that big a deal. So then you introduce your next idea. Your old idea moves one step forward. You introduce a new idea. The new idea is more radical, which makes the old idea not seem that bad at all. Well, it's not this. I mean, it's this, but it's not this. So things move from unthinkable to radical, from radical to acceptable, from acceptable to sensible, from sensible to popular, from popular to policy, and policy to history. And this has happened on the trans issue so quickly because they were able to import along the tracks of justice used by the gay community, even though it's a separate issue in many ways, the same protections and legislation. And by that I mean things are happening so quickly, psychologists can't even keep up. Doctors can't even keep up. And if you expect 
pastors to be able to keep up and then followers of Jesus to keep up. My point is that this is a challenging moment that we're in. We have moved this through to the point of legislation faster than we've been able to discuss it through an ethical, medical, or psychological lens. Now, to the person struggling with uh, gender dysphoria who is looking for a typical life, I want to set those people aside for a moment, and I want to talk about gender non-binary activists, because this, I believe, is something that the church has to respond to. And so I want to submit a series of questions to gender non-binary activists to help them think through the logical conclusions of their own arguments. Question number one, if we can shift identities based on an internal subjective state, why not other identities? Why can I not say that I identify as African-American even though I'm white? This, as you're aware, up here in the Pacific Northwest actually happened. Rachel Dolezal, I'm not going to stop and apologize and grovel. Two years ago, she was a respected black rights activist and teacher. Then she was exposed as a white woman who had deceived almost everyone she knew. Why did she do it? Next slide here. Her response, I feel that I was born with the essential essence of who I am, whether it matches my anatomy and complexion or not, says Dolezal. I've never questioned being a girl or a woman, for example, but whiteness has always felt foreign to me for as long as I can remember. I didn't choose to feel this way or be this way. I just am. What other choice is there than to be exactly who we are? And when she identified with the African-American struggle and talked about us, people were quick to respond. All your life, you know what you've had? White privilege. And for you then, because you feel like it, want to identify with a legitimate minority, you want to talk about cultural appropriation. What gives you the right to feel like you've been through the struggle? All you've had is white privilege. And any moment you change your mind, you can live in another world and access that privilege at will. Major pushback. So if we can do this for gender identities because someone in their mind feels like they're not who they are, what limits it to that category? All it takes is a series of activists with an Overton window to push a new agenda with the same strategy. Another identity, transabled people. Jason said he suffers from body integrity identity disorder, B-I-I-D. And he basically says, even though I'm physically able, I identify as disabled. Next slide here. I think we want body identity integrity disorder, also referred to as amputee identity disorder, is a proposed disorder in which otherwise healthy individuals perceive one or more of their limbs or organs as alien to the rest of their body and wish to have it amputated. And so this is people seeking surgery to have various limbs removed. Now then you would say, that is so barbaric, why would you remove a functioning limb? But logically the question you would have to ask is, isn't it, just as, uh, isn't it as just as an aggressive maneuver to force a 16-year-old or to have a 16-year-old have a double mastectomy and have her womb removed? There's a serious body alteration connected to this. Second question I would ask, what about women's rights? To protect women's rights, we have to be able to say what a woman is. Mary Lou Singleton of the Women's Liberation Front says, my entire life work is fighting for the class of people who are oppressed on the basis of their biological sex. 
including atrocities like forced child marriage, infanticide of baby girls, and female genital mutilation, which occurs across the globe. But because of the gender identity movement, Singleton says, it is now deemed transphobic even to label these victims women and girls. What we are seeing is the legal erasure of the material reality of sex. Protections based on sex are now being eliminated from the law. Well, how does this show up? Where I live right now, there's a major uh, controversy, next slide here, around athletics and transgender realities. In Connecticut, athletics, the two transgender women are now entering into women's sports, dominating the field. It's promoting tremendous disillusionment. It's, It's creating morale, just a dip in morale, because women cannot beat these men. They cannot beat them. They're dominating at a state level. They're dominating at a high school level. And so as this begins to make its way further into the public square, there's debates right now about the Olympics and what will happen with connections to that. What do we do with women's rights? Again, isn't this a form of cultural appropriation for somebody to step into a cherished victim class and to say, I feel that, though they're not subject to the actual limitations? Number three, what about research on the family? What do we do with the family? Until now, the family has been seen as natural and pre-political, with natural rights. That means it existed prior to the state, and the state merely recognized the implicit rights within it. But if the law no longer recognizes natural sex, then it no longer recognizes natural families or natural parents, only legal parents. Stella Morabito, a cultural commentator, says, once you basically redefine humanity as sexless, you end up with a dehumanized society in which there can be no legal mother or father or son or daughter or husband or wife without permission from the state. Trans activists have even protested the use of terms like man and woman because some males identify as woman and vice versa. Activists have protested the practice of referring to pregnant women as lactating mothers because trans men who were born female can also get pregnant and lactate. The Midwives Alliance of North America changed their literature to delete the word mother and substitute pregnant individual and birthing person. You are now deemed transphobic if you say breastfeeding. You must say chest feeding to be inclusive of trans men. When gender is denaturalized, parenthood will be denaturalized. Federal forms are being changed to reflect the denaturalized family. In 2011, the Obama administration State Department announced it was replacing mother and father on a passport with parent one and parent two. The free application of federal student aid, which virtually all colleges fills out, uses the same gender-neutral terms. There's a reason Aldous Huxley, in his novel Brave New World, depicts a tyrannical world government that treats mother and father as obscene words. By making the language of family that's seen, the world state ensures that its citizens form their primary loyalty to itself, rendering them easier to manipulate and to control. Propaganda and education. Virtually all sex education and curricula in America take their lead from the Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States. Gender identity refers to a person's internal sense of being male, female, or a combination of these, and people's understandings of the gender identity may change over the course of their times. For the gender, I have the gender-bred person. The gender unicorn is another tool that's used in such a way. But to quote, the experience of transgender identity or any other form of gender expansive behavior is a healthy, appropriate, and typical aspect of human development. A gender expansive student should never be asked, encouraged, or required to affirm a gender identity or to express their gender in a manner that is not consistent with their self-identification or expression. Any such attempts or requests are unethical and will likely cause emotional harm. It is irrelevant whether a person's objection to a student's identity or expression is based on sincerely held religious 
beliefs or the belief that the student lacks capacity or ability to assert their gender identity or expression. Gender identity expression can change every day or even every few hours, and thus fluidity can be displayed in how we dress, express, and describe ourselves. Everyone's gender expects on a continuum. Then lastly, the role of legal tyranny. In New York City, you can now be fined a quarter million dollars for intentionally misgendering someone by using pronouns other than the person's preferred pronouns. October 2017, the governor of California signed a law that sent healthcare workers to jail for failing to use a person's chosen pronouns. We live in a moment, my point is, where Christians have some response to be a counterculture that displays the goodness of gender and human flourishing in a world that is pulling itself apart. Philip Reif, a cultural commentator, has a concept that he calls anti-culture, and he says this, culture, according to the book of Genesis, is ordering chaos for human flourishing. In modern society, we are disordering culture and turning it into chaos. Anti-culture is the environment in which predators and power-hungry people thrive. And that's what's being created in our world today. So how do we as a church deal with people genuinely wrestling with their gender identity, trying to follow Jesus? And how do we live in a society that's trying to deconstruct it by any means necessary? The number one thing we have to have, period, is compassion. Compassion is the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So may God give us wisdom as followers of Jesus as we wrestle with these complex issues and seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. Amen.